Hi, everyone. This is Scott from Prepare to Answer. I want to share some news with you about an exciting new resource that we've created called So Much More Than Sex. It's no secret that the subject of sex is one of the biggest concerns for young Christians today. That's why we've created So Much More Than Sex for senior teens and young adults. It's a four-part video series, complete with notes and discussion questions, that you can do with your young adults class, small group, or even on your own. The point of the series is to help you shift the narrative about sex away from seeing biblical teaching as little more than an outdated list of do's and don'ts, and replacing it with the overwhelmingly positive, life-giving, and eternally significant vision that the Bible gives for your sexually ordered body. If you want to get in on the So Much More Than Sex series, just follow the link in the episode description. And now we turn to today's episode. So the most practical implication for moms then is at the very level of their relationship with their children. As women, they have really two different goals depending on whether they're relating with their sons or their daughters. As women, moms have the specific goal with their sons to teach them how to relate to women. But for their daughters, they're teaching their daughters how to relate as women. Welcome back to another episode of Prepared to Answers podcast. My name is Sean Walker, and I'm joined by Scott Steen, and we are glad you have joined us. We hope you've listened to our previous podcasts. And uh, if you haven't, uh, we would invite you to join us on preparedtoanswer.org. Uh, for all of our podcast posting. So, Scott, in today's podcast, we are going to be tackling the subject of identity. We are, Sean, but we're going to narrow that down a little bit. Identity is a huge subject. I'm not sure we could tackle everything we needed to say about that in one podcast. So as a way of narrowing our scope a little bit, and in light of the fact that we just finished celebrating Mother's Day, I thought we would talk today about how mums in particular are used by God to help form their own children's sense of identity. So this is a fairly large subject. Where do you even start? Well, there are a lot of places we could start and a lot of things we could focus on. But of course, Sean, here prepared to answer, we realize that people really do live the way that they think. And so we're always interested in helping people to look at the ideas and beliefs that surround us in the culture that influence the way that we think and believe Realizing that as Christians, uh, we are to primarily form our minds according to God's truth. And sometimes that requires us to take a step back and, and rethink about the way that we think or relook at the way that we think. So where I want to begin is just to, to start by looking at what I see as two main cultural assumptions that greatly influence the way that we as parents, and of course, we're specifically talking about mothers today, but the way we as parents raise our children or relate to our children. And so here's two assumptions that I think are worth surfacing and recognizing and responding to biblically. The first assumption is this, the cultural assumption that says that our children belong to us. Let's face it, our sinful tendency is to live as if life is all about us, and it's not. That's the biblical, that's the Christian position, that the story of creation, that God's plan of redemption, that the promised return of Jesus, whereby God's eternal kingdom is established on earth forever, that's not our story. It's God's story. And the, the Bible confirms this. You look at, in particular, you look at the end of the story in John's revelation in chapter 5, where John is given this vision of the throne room of God at the end of all time, and there he looks 
and he sees seated on the throne is the lamb who was slain, that's Christ. And those gathered around the throne begin singing this song. They declare these things about him, about Jesus as the lamb. And they sing, they say, you are worthy to take the scroll, which in essence is the eternal will of God. You're worthy to take that scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And here's the key. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So as Christians, we need to continually remind ourselves of this great truth that our stories and that the stories of our children's lives are ultimately not about us. They're about God. Yes, our children are given to us as gifts and they are to be treasured by us. Yes, we are to love them and care for them and count them as our own. But remember that first and foremost, our kids belong to God. He's the one who brought their lives into being, not us. Sure, we were involved, but no person ever by virtue of their own choice or decision or actions ever brought a human life into existence. Sure, our biology is involved, but we don't actually make life. That's God's job. So like us, our kids are created for His glory And like us, their greatest joy and satisfaction will only come from belonging to him in Christ as his children. And I'm reminded of of something that God said through the prophet Malachi. He was uh, admonishing Israel for their unfaithfulness. And in particular, he was admonishing husbands for their unfaithfulness to their wives. And he was declaring his desire and his design for marital faithfulness. And he says this about husbands and wives. He says, has not the one God made you, both you husbands and wives? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does this one God seek? And the answer is, he seeks godly offspring. So there's this deep interest that God has in the preservation of healthy marriages as the place where children are to come from because God's very interested in our children because ultimately they belong to him. The second cultural assumption I think we have to recognize anytime we're talking about children or any issues around gender or specifics about roles of mothers or fathers is the assumption in our culture right now that women and men are really just superficially different, but fundamentally the same. And this has been coming for a while now, but we can really point to some changes in social thinking really going back to the 50s and 60s. One of the most notable voices in the early feminist movement of the 50s and 60s was a woman by the name of Simone de Beauvoir. She said, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. She said, it's civilization as a whole that produces this creature intermediate between male and eunuch, which is described as feminine. This whole idea that the very notion of woman or the very concept of woman is ultimately the product of a social construction that began back in the 50s and 60s. Now, I'm not here to dismiss all feminist thought out of hand. Obviously, a great deal of feminist thought and the feminist movement was in reaction to some very real and tangible abuses being committed against women, whether it was denial of rights or downright oppression of women in many cases. So I'm not here to dis feminism per se. But I think we need to recognize that second wave feminism that swept Western culture in the 50s and 60s has shaped the way our culture thinks today. And we cannot help but be influenced by that. And the result is that popularly today, we tend to think of ourselves in genderless terms. Not that most of us would deny that there are such a thing as men and women, although some would. But we don't think of ourselves primarily in those categories any longer. We tend to think and talk about ourselves as persons, as individuals, as human beings, instead of as men and women. 
If you wanted to delve a little deeper in that, uh, the last article we published on our website was called How Christians Should Respond to Identity Confusion. And in that article, I really kind of unpacked a little bit more on how do we get to the point where in our culture, we separated the notion of being an individual person from being a male or female being. And it's an interesting progression of thought, but it's there and you can kind of map it out. It's reflected, you know, in the, here's just a quote from another second wave feminist, a woman by the name of Betty Friedan. She said, for the first time in history, she's speaking about now this cultural movement in the 60s, the feminist movement. She says, women are becoming aware of an identity crisis in their own lives, a turning point from immaturity that has been called femininity to full human identity. And there you can see really clearly that cultural separation of being female or male from being a human being. The essence of us is human, right? The female or male part, that's the social construction. That really, that's been manipulated and we need to do away with that. So the implications of seeing male and female then as mere social constructions is that it reduces all arguments for male and female distinctions to social power moves. And that's basically what happened, is is suddenly... Now, if they're social constructions, they're there for a reason, and the prevailing narrative is, yeah, the reason is so that men could maintain an oppressive hold over women. So if we undo those social categories, we pull the curtain back, so to speak, and show that they're nothing, really, that they're just fabrications entirely, then we can move to a greater reality where we just do away with those altogether and treat each other as individuals, individual persons only. So here's the correction, I think, biblically to that assumption, to remember that men and women share the same nature, which means we are equal in value, but we do so as separate and distinct gendered beings. And this means that there's nothing that we ever do merely as human beings. Rather, everything that we do is as a man or a woman, even if we do the same things. You got a male basketball star or a female basketball star, right? They're both playing basketball. But one is doing it as a man and the other is doing it as a woman. And so there's a difference. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So then what's this got to do with mothers raising their kids? Well, it it might be hard to see at first, but I would say it has everything to do with it. Because because you cannot be successful, and this isn't just this isn't just for mothers. This these are principles that I think go both ways for mothers and fathers, but we're talking about mothers today. I think it has everything to do with it because you cannot be successful in raising your children if you don't know what the goal is. And biblically speaking, the goal in parenting is not to raise godly human beings. It's to raise boys to be godly men right. and girls to be godly women. Right. Okay. That's good. So then what specific role would mothers play in developing a healthy sense of identity for their kids? Well, to start with, I would say mothers, by virtue of being mothers, they play a vital role in helping children establish a clear sense of who and what they are at the most basic level of their being, namely their being created as either male or female. Okay, when we go back to the scriptures and we look at the foundational texts of the Bible where everything starts and God explains how everything came about through his creative initiative. And Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 tells us, well, verse 26, God decides, now let us make man in our image. And so God decides to create man, verse 27, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And it's interesting, those last two lines, there's a parallel there. He's talking about both at the same time. He created them in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. 
So that that's very much core to understanding not just our own individual nature, but the nature of humanity itself. Now, history is full of extreme distortions when it comes to this idea that human nature has been divided into male and female. But it's interesting that virtually all of those models are based on conflict, which isn't surprising given what happened in Genesis chapter 3. That because of sin and the fall, the man and the woman who were both at the beginning naked and felt no shame before one another suddenly felt a sense of shame and suddenly turned on each other. And, and since then, there has been this male-female conflict. But it doesn't say in Genesis that they were created in conflict. No, they weren't created in conflict. Now, the prevailing models of understanding the male and female interaction or distinction in in humanity, really, they're all based on conflict, right? Whether it's distortions about the idea of male superiority or whether it's distortions about the idea of female superiority, which they are out there. Even if it's the distortions about male and female being just the same thing or there being no distinction, Those are all distortions based on the idea of conflict. The biblical portrait of creation, interesting though, reveals that gender distinctions are not something to be overcome because they weren't originally a source of conflict. They were created to work together equally to glorify God. And I think that's key to understand that humanity was made male and female in order to bear God's image. And it's interesting when you look at the creation text, specifically in Genesis 1, It's interesting to observe how creation was made to reflect the most essential quality of God's nature, which is his holiness or his own distinction. See, what makes God holy is that he, as God, is set apart. He is distinct. Holy holy basically means distinct. It means set apart. It means uh, not like everything else. And that's who God is in his essence of his being. One thing he is not for sure. He is not the creation. He is God and there is no other like him. He is holy. He is distinct. So it's a little surprise then that the very way that this holy and distinct God creates is by making distinctions, by setting things apart. And when you look at the Genesis 1 text, it's fascinating because how does God create? Day one, he creates light and darkness. How does he create it? He creates it by separating the two. Day two, it was separating the waters above, that's the sky, from the waters below, that's the sea. He creates by making a separation, by distinguishing between them. Same with day three on and the water and the land. Now you have these two distinct spheres of living on earth, water and land. And then he fills these distinct spheres with living creatures of all sorts, whether it be plant or animal. And how does he make them? They, they are all distinguished according to their own kind. And it's interesting to note that in all this creation, none of it was created in conflict. No. Right? No. That light and darkness weren't in conflict. No. The water, the sky above, and the water below, they weren't in conflict, but rather they all worked together. Right, that's right. That's cool, yeah. So finally, in his crowning achievement, he creates humanity, creates man to bear his image, and how does he choose to create them? What form does he choose for humanity to take in order to bear his image? And the form he chooses is for humanity to be this plurality, this dual-formed being, male and female. It wasn't just for practical purposes either. It wasn't just so they could be fruitful and multiply. Because let's be honest, God could have figured out a different way to make more people. 
we could have been self-replicating beings. We could have been pod people or something. I don't know. But the very fact that he made us into this plurality of being, and then in the the husband-wife union of marriage, and this is why Genesis 2 is so significant. In the account of Genesis 2, where Adam is placed in the garden, he's on his own. He names all the animals. He finds no help or suitable for himself. God places him into a sleep and then actually takes flesh. He takes a rib out of his side. He could have just formed another lump of clay and made it more curvy and blown his breath of life into that lump of clay to make the woman and brought her to the man and said, look, here's someone else just like you. But he didn't do that. He took the rib out of the man. He used that to fashion the woman, brings her back to the man so he can literally say, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There's this union. They are of the same flesh and yet they're not the same person. They're distinct in their being as male and female, but they share this oneness in their flesh. That's not coincidental when we are bearing the image of the creator who in himself is both unified and plural. That God is one in his being, but plural in his persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And and so there's this Beyond just the individual person bearing the image of God in our character qualities, intelligence, reasoning, creativity, and all those things, which are all true, there's an even greater sense in which humanity as a whole bears his image because we share this unity in our nature, but this plurality or diversity in our being as male and female. So at the most basic level, then, mothers like fathers, are, are they're essential to helping children establish their own sense of place and distinction as God's image bearer, right? Where boys bear God's image in distinctively male ways and girls bear God's image in distinctively female ways. Neither one, neither one can be better than the other, nor can one do away with the other. We need both to be celebrated and valued and honored so that the creator will truly be reflected in his creation. If we do away with feminine qualities, we're doing away with at least 50% of humanity's capacity to bear the image of God. Those female qualities that men don't share, they are reflections of God's nature and character in ways that men do not reflect them. So, you know what? I mean, there's a lot more I could say about that. There's a lot more uh, uh, in terms of understanding the unique ways that boys and girls bear the image of God. And what I would what I would say is uh, I, w- I would recommend to our listeners a, a really good resource, a book uh, written by Glenn Stanton. He's a, he's a staff writer for Focus on the Family. He's done research and writing in the area of gender and gender identity, uh, as well as parenting for the past 18 years. Uh, he recently put out a really great book. The title is Secure Daughters, Confident Sons, How Parents Guide Their Children into Authentic Masculinity and Femininity. And we'll have a link to that book on the episode page for this podcast on the website for those who are interested in that. Okay, great. Yeah, Scott, this is some great stuff, some fairly deep stuff, but uh, maybe we could look at making this more practical uh, in terms of mothers and how they can help establish uh, their identity for their kids. Sure. And I, and I recognize that there aren't a lot of how-tos in this episode. One of the most practically important things, though, that <laughs> Christian moms can and should do in terms of helping their children to establish a secure and confident sense of identity, particularly as boys or girls, men or women, is to really work to safeguard them from the gender difference denying messages in our culture that we want to recognize and celebrate Mm -hmm. that the growing up goals for sons and daughters are different. 
they're not the same. There's a great line from that movie, Tom Cruise movie, Jerry Maguire. I'm not suggesting you run out and watch it, but there's a great line from it where the character played by Renee Zellweger, Dorothy, is talking with her sister, and her sister's warning her as a single mom not to get involved with Jerry, who seems like a bit of a a loose cannon. And she says, you know, you need to get practical. And Dorothy responds and says, she says, do you know what most women my age are doing? She says, they're out partying. They're trying to get a man. They're trying to keep a man. Not me. I'm trying to raise a man. And I think it's interesting, you know, in that kind of cute little line where she's really commenting on her plight as a single mom. But at least in saying that, she recognizes what it is she's trying to accomplish. She's trying to raise her son to be a man. And that's a challenge for her because she's a single mom. So I think there's some really practical outcomes in recognizing that raising boys and girls have different goals. Boys are being raised to become men. Girls are being raised to become women. Mm -hmm. So the most practical implication for moms then is at the very level of their relationship with their children. As women, they have really two different goals, depending on whether they're relating with their sons or their daughters. As women, moms have the specific goal with their sons to teach them how to relate to women. But for their daughters, they're teaching their daughters how to relate as women. So could we... Could we try to maybe make it a little more practical or could we look at a practical example? Uh, So my kids are teenagers. They're coming to the point that they may start dating. Um, As a mother, what are some things I can do or I can teach or, or what is there that I can do? Well, I mean, if it's if it's date night and your son or daughter is about to go out with a with a boy or a girl, if you haven't done anything up to that point, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> At very best, though, you should be reminding them, hopefully, of what you've been modeling and teaching them. In terms of sons, what a son needs to learn from his mother, and hopefully will learn in her relationship with him, mm-hmm. is how he as a yep. man ought to treat a woman. What's okay and what's not okay in terms of how you treat a woman. Right. Yeah. And, and it could get practical too in terms of, you know, practical ways of how to, how to really impress a girl, I suppose. But more importantly, right. I think, is in the whole area of how to respect and honor mm-hmm. a woman as a woman. That's what a mother should be teaching her son. And hopefully, if this is a a situation where it's a mother and a father working Mm -hmm. together, hopefully that's been taken place as well through example in how the father treats the mother in the home. It's not always the case. I understand that. But even in the case where there have been negative examples or in the case where if you're a single mom, uh, obviously that's a little more challenging. But you can even instruct from the position of the negative, which is to talk with your son and say, you know what, this is not how a woman deserves or desires to be treated. And it's certainly not how God desires for you to treat a woman because a woman ought to be loved, ought to be respected, ought to be honored because like you, a woman bears the image of God in unique and valuable right. ways that are worthy of honor because that's honoring, ultimately honoring to our right. creator. How about a daughter? Well, likewise for daughters, I think the reciprocal is a mother is trying to help a daughter relate as a woman. And so through her example and her relationship with her daughter, she's passing on an understanding of how you ought to expect a man to right. treat you, that this is not how a man ought to treat you or this is what you should look for. Again, in the ideal, that's where mother and father are working together, where the father should be modeling. He should be giving the daughter a taste of how a man relates to her or ought to relate to her. Mm -hmm. But again, if that's missing, uh, sometimes the the reality is that's often the case. There isn't a positive male presence. 
But I think you can still instruct even from the position of the negative mm-hmm. to say that's not what we would want. That's that's not what what makes us right. feel loved and and honored as women. Uh, and so it's really it really I guess it comes down to setting those expectations. But again, right. that flows out of our ongoing relationship with our sons and daughters. Once you get to date night, you really have to be pointing <laughs> yeah. backwards to, yeah. you know what, I've taught you this all along. Remember, you need to remember, this is how you treat mm-hmm. a woman. You remember, this is how you ought to be tr- expect to be treated. And if you do your best, I think, to instill that all along, I think it'll pay dividends mm-hmm. for your kids. Yeah. And, and of course, the bottom, the bottom line of everything is then to pray. <laughs> right. For sure, and and what a what a great reminder of how examples uh, can often be the best instruction for our kids. Um, oh, oh, definitely, yeah. Right. So much of what we teach them is what we model, right? Right. Yeah. Before yeah. we sign off here, Sean, I just wanted to make some recommendations. I recommended the one book, but there's a couple other books I would just recommend for parents. We're talking to moms, but I would say for both parents in terms of helping their children to establish that you know secure sense of identity. So much of it's through relationship. And there's a book that's been written by Gordon Newfeld. It's not a Christian book. Gordon Newfeld is a is a psychologist, but it's a very good one. And the title is called Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. And I think this is important in this whole subject of establishing identity because the peer culture that our kids are growing up in, let's face it, Sean, we're not that old. Even back in the 80s, when we were growing up, (laughs) there was a peer culture and peers very much shape our children's identity. And Neufeld's point is that historically that wasn't the case. Peer culture is, or rather teen culture, is a very recent phenomenon. In fact, historically, if you look, it's post-World War II, right? Prior to that, the essential identity formation, relationship formation hub for a child was the family. The other one I would just mention has more to do with our identity as Christians. The second book I would recommend is one by Jerry Bridges. The title is Who Am I? Identity in Christ. It's put out by Cruciform Press. It's a small book, but it almost acts as a great little biblical primer, useful for parents in helping them be clear on what our identity in Christ means. And it's actually short enough and clear enough that I think you could put it in the hands of a teenager or a young adult child who's going off to college to help them understand who they are in Christ, their identity as a Christian. So those are three books that I would recommend. Again, I'll have them linked on the episode page for this podcast episode on the website. Great. Good. Well, thank you very much for those recommendations. And it's been some great teaching today. Thanks, Scott, for all of that and for some practical examples of of how we can help uh, not only mothers but fathers as well in growing healthy identities for our kids. You're welcome, Sean. It was a big subject. I I hope that uh, people can at least pull a few nuggets out. For sure. And and they'll be of help to them. For sure. And, And I want to thank our listeners for joining us. And as always, if you have any questions not only on this subject, but others that uh, Prepared to Answer uh, discusses or we have on our website, we encourage you to reach out to us either through Facebook or email, through our website, through Instagram, and we'll be more than happy to come alongside you and help you. We again thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you join us next time. This podcast has been a ministry of Prepared to Answer. Our mission at Prepared to Answer is to help prepare, equip, and encourage the Church of Jesus Christ to grow in confidence of faith by teaching Christians to think like Jesus. 
to access more resources to help you begin understanding life and the world around you with the mind of Jesus, visit our website at www.preparedtoanswer.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at at prepared to answer or contact us directly by email at info at prepared to May the Lord bless and keep you.